Hey everyone, it's Jacqueline Melanick. Welcome to Chain Reaction, a show that unpacks and dives deep into the latest trends, drama, and news with some of the biggest names in crypto, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. Today's guest is Sergey Nazarov, the co-founder of Chainlink, a protocol that provides an Oracle network to power smart contracts. What does all of that mean? Basically, oracles connect blockchains with real-world external systems or non-blockchain enterprises. So Chainlink bridges the gap between the two and enables smart contracts the ability to execute transactions based on real-world inputs and outputs. I feel like I just threw a lot of big jargon in there, but don't worry, Sergey and I will get into it in a bit, so just hold on. Chainlink also refers to itself as a Web3 services platform that connects people, businesses, and data with the world of Web3. And it's all for good reason. Chainlink has enabled over $7 trillion in transaction volume across DeFi, gaming, NFTs, and other major industries. Prior to co-founding Chainlink, Sergey co-founded four other businesses, most recently Smart Contract, which, you guessed it, focuses on smart contracts. Sergey, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Excited to chat with you about this. Yeah. And before we get into everything, I want to take a step back and ask you to tell me about one of the most interesting people in crypto you've met or talked to in the past 12 months. And what did you learn from them? So I'm very lucky to have a few great advisors. One of them is Eric Schmidt, who used to be the CEO of Google. And I speak with him regularly and get his feedback on where we're going and where the space needs to go to get wider adoption and solve real world problems. I think the thing that struck me about his views was the value of data and how data that is considered truthful and reliable is indeed something that I think he believes in his vast experience is going to be important because people want to know what the truth is. They want to know what the most reliable assessment Mm -hmm. of a situation is. And that's essentially what our system does. The other thing is the need to have reliable systems is something that I think is a hallmark of The evolution of different technologies is that the system that can provide the greatest reliability, the greatest uptime, the greatest security tends to continue to win. I think both of those points are things that me and him discuss and that he has very insightful views on. And really, for me, his vast experience just kind of confirmed some assumptions about the value of generating truth, cryptographic truth, and making sure that that truth is generated in a very reliable, secure, and and transparent way. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And then to start off with the actual episode, I threw a lot of terms out there in the intro. So, Sergey, I'm going to ask you if you can explain the significance of Oracle Networks powering smart contracts and why do they matter today? Sure. So Oracle Networks are really the thing that puts the word smart and smart contracts. Smart contracts in and of themselves don't know what time it is. Mm -hmm. They don't have the ability to access any external system, whether that's an existing backend system or a data source. They don't have access to anything other than what's already in a blockchain. And historically, that has been three things, private key signatures, token ledgers, and smart contracts as a state machine. So places where you define the conditions of a contract. That is what blockchains have historically come to consensus on. And consensus is the unique computer science innovation that is applied by our industry in this decentralized way. And so blockchains create consensus only about those three things, private key signatures, token ledgers, and state machines. Oracle networks create consensus about everything else, about all the world's data, random numbers, computations that are needed by blockchains, communication with existing backends, communications between chains, Basically, everything that's needed to build a more advanced application beyond the tokenization system, 
or a token trading system is what an Oracle network enables. And we originated Oracle networks when Chainlink was launched. And just to put this in perspective, DeFi, when we launched, was well below 100 million in total value locked. Mm -hmm. And after our launch in a number of years, it grew to over 200 billion. And there's very clear patterns that independent researchers have now verified that when an Oracle network goes live on a certain chain and provides data to it, that chain's total value locked within advanced applications, like advanced gaming applications or advanced DeFi applications, skyrockets. And skyrockets doesn't mean that it doubles. It means it more than 100Xs. Because if you really think about it, you can't build advanced applications without various advanced inputs and outputs. So for example, something like Uber was only able to be built when you had other systems that took on a big portion of the workloads and the problems that Uber basically uses to, to provide its value, right? So Uber was built on the Twilio API to text message with the driver and the user, the mm -hmm. Google Maps API to know the location of the user and the driver, and the Stripe Payments API to pay the driver. So without those APIs, you really can't build an advanced application because the people who want to build it get stuck building the infrastructure. And so Oracle Networks right now, and Chainlink specifically, I would say is one of the top three most value processing systems in the blockchain industry because it powers so many applications across gaming, DeFi, insurance, and many others. Okay. And then what do you think has been one of the most unexpected use cases for Oracle Networks that you've come across recently? Or what has kind of surprised you with the use of them? I think one of the things that surprised me is the amount of data and the amount of commands that need to go from an existing backend into a smart contract. So initially, when we started working on oracles, we wanted to use consensus to generate cryptographic truth on various specific topics like market data, weather, and various specific data points. I basically realized that it actually extends far beyond proving things. And it even extends to how existing Web2 and capital markets and bank backends will be able to even use a blockchain. So Oracle networks and oracles aren't just about proving things. They're actually about making sure that multiple blockchains can even be used by certain institutions because the use of them without that interface, without Oracle networks and oracles as a kind of abstraction layer mm -hmm. to make multiple chains usable becomes too complex and will really slow down adoption. One of the exciting things for us right now is not just proving the truth of market data or weather or news events or various other events, but it's, it's actually enabling all the world's systems to efficiently connect into multiple chains through one system, namely the chain link system. Yeah. And so the amount of commands and events that would need to be put in from existing backends, not even from data sources, is something that was initially a surprise to me, but then later on made a lot of sense. Right. I'm glad you bring that up too, because my next question for you, Sergey, is kind of how does the digital world of blockchains play into this physical world that most other people outside of crypto operate and work in? Sure. So I, I think the right way to think about it is that you have the Web2 digital world, mm -hmm. and the Web2 digital world is not guaranteed in any meaningful way. Because at any point, somebody like SVB or whoever can change the rules, and then you have a difficult situation. So the digital world is very distinct from the cryptographically guaranteed Web3 world. And in that sense, the right way to think about Web3 is that it's the guaranteed and reliable form of the digital world. And so the real answer to your question is, 
how does the internet and how to, does interacting with the physical world through the internet work today and, and how can it be made more reliable? And the answer to that is basically by enabling Web3 to guarantee the relationships in the physical world, not just in a digital sense, where at any point anyone can change the rules mm -hmm. and not give you access to your money or not pay out your insurance policy or make your gaming items that you won devalued. Those types of outcomes in the physical world would now become impossible because the Web3 cryptographically guaranteed system makes them impossible. Mm -hmm. So the right way to think about it is the digital world is unreliable digital and Web3 is cryptographically guaranteed. You're definitely always going to have access to your money. You're definitely going to get paid your insurance. You're definitely going to retain value in the gaming items that you win. Web3 guarantees that version of the world world, right? Yeah. So it's just a more reliable, much better digital. I just want to clarify with that. When you say it's a guarantee, do you mean because things on the blockchain are transparent? Is it through smart contracts? Like what ways would this kind of provide that guarantee in the way that Web2 doesn't? It's a parallel system of contracts, mm -hmm. right? And the Web2 world defines events in a digital form in databases and has APIs moving things around and has user interfaces showing people what's going on. But at the end of the day, those promises are only backed by the legal system. And they're only backed by people's choice to fulfill those promises. Mm -hmm. In this system of contracts, there is no capacity for human choice. There is no interaction with the legal system. There is just a technically enforced system of contracts, which means, just to paint a parallel, Regardless of what you feel a Bitcoin is worth, I don't know what a Bitcoin is worth. What I'm interested about when it comes to Bitcoin is that you can control a Bitcoin deterministically. And deterministically means that you have 100% guarantee that the way that it previously behaved is the way that it will again behave next time, mm -hmm. as long as you have the private key. Now, people up until SVB, I think, in many cases, felt that banks were deterministic. They felt that banks would always behave in a predictable repeating way that, that they understood. But now I think more and more people realize that banks are probabilistic, that there is a chance that they will not behave in the way that, that people expect because of a large amount of human-based decisions right. and legal promises that are not really guaranteed in any real tangible way, they're probabilistic. And so this distinction, even on this simple basis of Bitcoin, you have control versus a bank, you have a probabilistic relationship with a group of people that may or may not decide to give you your money. That fundamental difference is what I mean about things being cryptographically guaranteed and there being cryptographic truth. And the other way to think about it is that imagine if I were to give you every Web2 application, the Web2 application you use or every Web2 application you use with the same speed, with the same cost, with the same usability, with the same user experience. But I was able to add a property that said, this application is deterministic it can never deviate from your expectations. So it can never remove your access to your money. It will always pay you out your insurance if something happens. And that is deterministic. That is technologically guaranteed in a way that neither you nor the insurance company nor the creator of the application can ever stop. Mm -hmm. Why would you ever choose the more risky Web2 application? You wouldn't. You would always choose the Web3 application that gives you these properties. So the real challenge for our industry and for us is creating infrastructure that allows developers 
to migrate all of the world's value at the same cost, efficiency, and usability into the Web3 format. And I, I actually think that'll be done not only by crypto startups, but also by uh, many banks and large Web2 companies, because this will be the new competitive dynamic on which they will restore faith in their system. Because we are really heading quite rapidly towards an increasingly large crisis of faith mm -hmm. in the promises that brands make. Mm -hmm. And those brands will not fulfill those promises, just like SVB and all these other banks didn't fulfill their promises. And so everyone will look for an alternative that guarantees them technologically, similarly to how the text messages that you exchange are end-to-end -end encrypted. That's an example of a platform restoring your faith in text messaging by using encryption technologies to guarantee that your relationship with that information can never be manipulated. Right. And so this is just a trend that, that will continue really for all value and for everything digital, as long as infrastructure like Chainlink can allow that transition and enable that transition to happen. Yeah, I think one of the beautiful things about crypto and many people outside of this industry just don't notice this is that what you're talking about, that things are guaranteed, technology, smart contracts, whatever it may be, the technology exists and it does what it's supposed to do without human error or intermediaries. So I guess my question following up to that, and you touched on banks, is how can banks, institutions, fintech companies, and so on play into this and think about integrating tokenized assets and DeFi into their institutions? So all of these institutions and fintechs, you know, in the capitalist market economy system, are very sensitive mm -hmm. to their clients' and users' demands and needs. They are basically just entities that serve those needs, as well as the needs of their shareholders. So the real answer to this question is that the users will continually demand this cryptographically guaranteed property for their use of an application. And I'll, I'll give you, once again, a, a simple parallel. So... 10, 15 years ago, everyone would send unencrypted text messages over SMS, mm -hmm. right? And no one would really know what encrypted text messaging is. And then there were a number of scandals where telecoms got hacked and social media companies misused people's messaging data. And everyone had a crisis of faith where they decided, I can't trust you as a technology platform to do something as simple as transmit my plain text between me and someone else I know. And that crisis of faith was resolved by end-to-end -end encryption, right? So when you go into WhatsApp and you open up any message session, at the top of each message session, it says all of your messages are end-to-end -end encrypted. And this means that not even we can read your messages and then it has a learn more button. So what happened? There was a failure in how systems worked. There was a crisis of faith. And then faith was restored because people were guaranteed, they were technologically guaranteed that a certain dimension of misuse or misbehavior or a certain dimension of basically system failure wasn't possible anymore because encryption made it impossible. And so this is the same type of demand that will extend more and more to everything else, mm -hmm. every other aspect of your digital life, everything from uh, your bank account to your insurance, to travel, to sports tickets, to games, to everything. Because at the end of the day, many more systems, A, will fail, and B, once people realize that they have this alternative, once they realize that they can have a banking relationship where no one can shut off their access to their money, why would they prefer a banking relationship where someone could shut off access to their money if they didn't have to? Yeah. The, the answer is they wouldn't. Yeah. And this is really the thing that will drive 
institutional adoption, fintech adoption, and startup adoption, institutions and fintechs are sitting on hundreds of trillions of dollars in value that needs to be properly managed and regulated and so on. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the hurdles for getting that value into the system. The other hurdle is their ability to efficiently interact with multiple chains. That's the problem I mentioned before that we solve, where through one integration, banks and fintechs and Web2 companies can interact with hundreds of different chains and basically future-proof themselves and being able to interact with hundreds and hundreds of chains through one system. And our interaction with the capital markets and the banking institutions and the large financial infrastructure players, the biggest ones in the world, is only increasing. Right. And it's increasing as a result of their clients coming to them and saying, I'd like custody, I'd like access to DeFi, I'd like more advanced smart contracts. And so it's, it's not driven by what the institutions want to do. It's always driven by what some consumer somewhere wants to do. And so I think it's very important that people even hearing this podcast and understanding these ideas understand that they now have an alternative that they can ask for from their insurance company, mm -hmm. from their bank, from their gaming company that puts them in control mm -hmm. and gives them the clarity and transparency to manage their own assets and their own financial life in a way that while people might have led them to believe they have, they previously never had. And so that's going to be the, the dynamic that continues to drive us. What do you think is the timeline for that, though, when it comes to widespread institutional adoption of DeFi? And where are we in that journey? Like, if we're going to use like a baseball analogy, are we walking up to the home plate to bat? Are we on first base? Are we about to have a home run? I don't think we're about to have a home run, but where do you think we are? So just there's a caveat that I'm so optimistic <laughs> about this industry, even right. though I've been, I've been working in it for, for over 10 years, that I, I always think this year is the year basically up until we get to November or December. Mm -hmm. And then I become convinced that next year is the year mm -hmm. for, for what you're saying. So just with that caveat, there are really two modes for, for adoption that I'm pretty sure I've, and I've, I've seen both of them and, and it continues to be the case that this is how it work. There's the fast case and the slow case. Mm -hmm. The slow case is based on this being a trillion dollar industry. And once you have a trillion dollar industry, that's enough value for people to continually slowly improve applications. Mm -hmm and for VCs to invest in new and better applications. And so the slow case is just that our industry has such a big market already that DeFi products, decentralized insurance products, blockchain gaming products increase and grow in quality. And that leads them to be better and better and gain greater and greater adoption, even just within the universe of blockchain land. And as the applications get better, they attract more users. Right. And so you have this kind of slow growth. We've passed that point, I think, when the industry went past 200 billion. At that point, there was no turning back mm -hmm. for the slow case. So the slow case is going to happen over a matter of, I think, anywhere from three to 10 years. Okay, there we go. The fast case is the one that I think you're, you're asking about more when, when you're talking about a home run. Fast case depends on failures, making people aware that they need an alternative. And the fast case has played out a number of times. So, for example, during the Greek debt crisis, the amount of Bitcoin wallet registrations from Greek IPs had a 600% increase. Mm -hmm. But then other countries with debt issues had an over 1,000% increase in registrations from their IPs. Mm -hmm. The recent SVB and other banking issues have led more and more people to join the industry. And I can't predict the speed and magnitude of failure that's going to happen in the traditional financial system. Mm -hmm. But I think, unfortunately, it's going to be infamous at this point. And depending on the size of those failures, 
that will determine the degree to which and the rapidity with which people seek an alternative. And the alternative that doesn't have the problems of the existing financial system, the existing insurance schemes, mm -hmm. the existing gaming ownership dynamics is this system. So the fast case really determines, is determined by the rate at which various failures in the existing system happen. And those failures continue to happen and continue to accelerate. Got it. All right. Sergey, I want to move into a segment that we do with most of our guests, if not all of them. We started doing this. It's called Rapid Fire Round. It's a fun little thing where we just ask you yes or no questions, this or that, or you could just answer one word responses. So you ready? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> You're fine. Don't worry. Okay. First one. Do you think AI will play a role in the future of Chainlink? Yes. Should privacy and security be a greater concern addressed with crypto, or is it being addressed enough? Definitely crypto. Okay. Would you launch another crypto company? That sounds unlikely. <laughs> okay. Is there a future where Chainlink could operate under a DAO-like structure? If those systems develop to a sufficiently high-quality, usable degree, anything is a possibility. But there's a lot of development that needs to happen there. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite meme coin to follow right now? I, I, I don't follow meme coins. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then last one, Chainlink is stuck on a stranded island with another blockchain, and you two have to work together to get off. Which blockchain are you working with? That's a great question. There's so many <laughs> great blockchains, I'd have to get back to you on that. Okay. One. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Those were very diplomatic responses. But I asked you in the beginning if you think AI would play a role in the future of blockchain, specifically with Chainlink, and I kind of wanted to dive into that with you. Obviously, AI is like a really hot topic right now. Everyone's talking about it. And I'm curious, Sergey, what do you kind of see are similarities between AI and blockchain technology? I think they're both rapidly uh, developing. I think they're solving different issues, though. I think AI solves a kind of efficiency issue a very important efficiency issue about, you know, one of the defining properties of basically human beings, which is cognition and intellect and so on. So it's a little bit of a different problem. Blockchains are all about privacy uh, and security and reliability and hyper-reliable mission-critical systems that can secure value. So there, there are different problem spaces. I think there is a place where they interact, where blockchains can help protect against adversarial AI or misuse of AI by making systems that are harder to manipulate. And I think AI can help blockchains by providing insight about various risk management and various analysis and various abilities to adapt to security and reliability risks. And our plan is to interact with AI in both of those ways, both in making systems that are resistant uh, to AI misuse, uh, basically AI-resistant infrastructure, and utilizing AI to help detect various risks and help optimize for the best reliability and the best security from an Oracle network that would be possible. Okay. So those are where the interaction points would be, I think. Okay. And then Chainlink also announced in 2022 the Cross-Chain Interoperability Protocol, or CCIP. For those who do not know, it aims to provide an open standard for devs to build services and apps that could be transferable across networks. I put out a tweet asking if anyone had questions for you, Sergey, and your community responded. And they wanted to know, are there updates there that you could share on the CCIP and how the protocol has evolved since the announcement? There, there are a lot of updates there. Not a lot of them that I can share because they're related <laughs> to users okay. that are planning to launch with the protocol. Mm -hmm. It is currently in, uh, I guess I would say, the final stages of security review. And it's going through multiple security reviews with multiple external firms. 
We take security extremely seriously here. It's why the system has been able to process over $7 trillion in contractual value. It's why there's so much of DeFi over 60% of DeFi runs on the system, mm-hmm. depending on the vertical, and some verticals it goes up as high as 80 or 90%. It's because the system can provide security and reliability. CCIP does have a lot of updates. There is a lot of adoption that I'm seeing both on the DeFi startup side and on the capital markets, banking institutional side. And actually, one of the great hopes there is that CCIP can be the bridge that connects the DeFi world with the capital markets institutional world because of its ability to integrate with both those backend systems and with various DeFi protocols. And that would, I think, be a very interesting high volume pathway to grow our entire industry. So I think there's a huge amount of real progress there that we'll kind of announce when our partners and the users are ready to announce it. But so far, CCIP is on track. It's in the final stages of security review. And it's basically at a place where we think we're getting closer and closer to the ability to to launch it with a select number of users. Is there like a time frame of when you guys would launch it? I'm very cautious about timeframes because in in security, you you really just need to prioritize security over people's expectations because while people's expectations might say, I want it now, Mm -hmm. what everyone definitely wants is a secure system. So I, I tend not to give timelines because timelines can change based on guaranteeing the security of the system. But we are increasingly confident about its security and the ability to launch it relatively soon. We're going to do our best to guarantee that security make sure there are great users, make sure the community gives thoughtful feedback to the system, and that it launches in a way that solves the kind of bridge hacking problems that we've seen. Mm -hmm. This is a similar thing to what we did with Oracle Networks for Data. We got it right, and it led DeFi boom because it was a secure, reliable system that was able to provide something that wasn't provided before at scale. And so we're, we're not just building something to ship to make people happy, we're building something that can be secure and reliable and can deliver real adoption and real innovation by developers at scale and with security. Mm -hmm. So that's just kind of the model that we have. Yeah, no, security is definitely important. And I feel like a lot of crypto companies and protocols and projects should prioritize that more. So I will tip my hat to you on that one. But another question I had for you, Sergey, is the Chainlink token link was launched in September 2017 and saw peaks during the 2021 bull run, as many coins did and then has since fallen as many other coins have too. And I'm not asking you to give price predictions. We're not going to get into that route. But how does the protocol Chainlink plan on using the token more efficiently or provide it like a greater purpose in the future when it comes to your Web3 services? Sure. So initially, the Link token was used as a payment mechanism for the services, and that's continuing to happen and continuing to increase. And we're continuing to, to make it easier and easier for people to utilize the system in that way. And it's being expanded to more and more services in that way alone to various other you know, things you can do with an Oracle network. The other thing that's a big focus on this question is Economics 2.0, which is comprised of multiple programs. One of those programs is the build program. One of them is the scale program. Another one is the staking system. And so the link token plays an important role in the staking system, making sure that the nodes and the network is uh, cryptographically guaranteed through crypto economic guarantees, Mm -hmm. basically, so that the people that run the network have the right incentives to maintain security and that the security of the network continues to increase as the usage of the network increases and as the value secured by the network increases. So it's really these two dimensions, one as a payment mechanism, which we're moving more and more friction from people being able to do that with Link, and that's 
getting expanded through that friction-reduced way to more and more services. And then the other way is through this uh, staking method that provides greater and greater security to the system as more staked and as more fees are paid into the system and as greater and greater value is secured. Okay, there we go. One of my last questions for you is obviously Chainlink does a lot of things as a Web3 services platform. What do you want it to be known for in the long term? Like when people say Chainlink, what do you want them to associate it with? Truth. I think there's an age-old problem where people manipulate the truth Mm -hmm. to serve their own needs. And I think there's a lot of philosophical work done on the value of uh, the truth. And uh, whether that's in human relationships or whether that's in uh, how societies are structured or whether it's even how the news media interacts with the government and Mm -hmm. and all these other things, right? It's truth and and people knowing what's going on and being able to make both rational decisions and even very fast digital decisions like decentralized crop insurance is a good example. Uh, You can't have decentralized crop insurance unless there's a source of truth telling you whether there was a drought or whether there was a flood. And so... I think it's an age-old philosophical problem and it's an age-old technical problem that I think if it can be solved, it can raise the net efficiency and the net fairness. It can bring everything closer, and and I use this word very sparingly, but closer to things being the right way. Mm -hmm. Because the right way is a very subjective view. But if we can arrive at a technically defined form of truth where people and systems and banks and whoever and societies even can can agree that as long as this technical system generates an outcome, I will abide by that outcome because it generates it in a fair, transparent, and agreed upon way. I think that'll be a very big leap forward and it'll it'll power not only smart contracts, but many other systems as well. All right. And my final question for you is what would be your advice to developers and projects building in the crypto ecosystem today? I think they have two choices. One choice is they find a trend Mm -hmm. that they attach their project to, and they are right. For example, NFTs were such a trend. The value of NFTs and the underlying real value of them can be debated. But what can't be debated is that there was a trend where a lot of money flowed into a market and people that built their system preemptively around that trend were successful by virtue of that market growing and, you know, rising tide floats all boats kind of thing. So that's one way to do it. One way to do it is to say, I believe that the next NFT trend is this thing being reformatted into a smart contract and working a certain way. But that's not, that's not really my recommended way because that tries to predict what will happen next to be in a market just because it's going to grow. Mm-hmm. The thing that I recommend is finding a societal or technical problem that blockchains can uniquely solve because of this cryptographic guarantee property, because they can take the world from being probabilistic and not predictable to cryptographically guaranteed and predictable, which is a huge leap. That is a huge improvement in many, many things. Anything from gaming to insurance to banks to concert tickets, whatever. Find something that you are personally interested in, ideally that you personally understand, and decide for how many years you will want to work on it. Commit that time to yourself to work on it for those years. I wouldn't commit less than five years. I wouldn't do less than five. If you can't do five, you should go work for someone. (laughs) Okay. 
So once you find what that thing is and you can commit to five years to go after it, regardless of how dumb anyone thinks you are, then I would go after it and at the same time be aware about being wrong and then maybe finding something right next to that problem that is the valuable problem. Because sometimes, you know, you might you might try to build a blockchain system for uh, real estate and you might realize real estate's a very difficult uh, industry to tokenize. Mm-hmm. But then you might realize that insurance contracts related to real estate are, e- are much easier to turn into a smart contract. Mm-hmm. And that's what you should do. You know, one way is to chase trends and the other way is to have conviction and commit yourself to a direction where you're personally interested in the problem or a group of problems in a general direction. And that second one is my strong recommendation. And now is a very good time to do that because the people who build in these markets that aren't like uh, too frothy or too intense or too hyped up, they end up getting the experience and they end up building the, the systems that when people do get excited about their category of work, they're the leader. You know, that's actually how, how Chainlink came to be where it is. It wasn't because everyone was telling us oracles were great. Vast majority mm-hmm. of people didn't even know what an oracle was. We only knew because we worked at it for many years and utilized them for many years and invented many of the procedures and, and methods of making them for many years. And then we decided to have conviction about the importance and value of, of this infrastructure. And, and so that's my strong recommendation, regardless of where the market is. Mm-hmm. Because if you have conviction and you're on a five-year timeline, in this market, you'll be proven right at some point, as long as you don't choose the completely wrong market. All right. There's a lot to think about there for everyone listening in. Sergey, it was great having you on the show. Thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll be back every other week with interviews with top players in the crypto ecosystem. Catch us on Thursdays for interviews with experts in the Web3 space. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and the stories we talked about can be found in our show notes and be sure to follow us at chain underscore reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself and produced by Yashad Kulkarni and Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. See you next time.